0: Let him go. Let him go? You heard me. I'm assaulting a police officer. A police officer? While he was standing on that garbage can, peeking in on hot Mary and her boyfriend. Peter, get out of here. We've been doing this James Bond, uh, sl- a slow uh, dive into James Bond where we're going to do all the Bond movies, which is great and it's fun and uh, it's one of our fave things. But a few weeks ago, you sent me an email saying, why don't we do the Dirty Harry movies? And normally I just delete your emails unread or, you know, put them in the spam bin. But what a, I don't really, what a great idea that was. Where did that come from?
1: I just wanted to rewatch them. I was watching I was on a YouTube uh, rabbit hole the other night and this often happens where I just end up going from video to video bored out of my skull and it took me to a live performance of the Lalo Schifrin score. Oh, you're kidding. That's a great score. And I thought you know what? I need to rewatch this film. It's been a while. And it just makes sense to do it for the podcast because they're very interesting films. And it's a very well, strange some, um... uh I I hate to use the word franchise, but it's a very strange series of films in that it's one of the very few I can think of which doesn't include a a cover title. It's not called Dirty Harry the Enforcer or Dirty Harry Magnum Force. They kept them all individual films, but they all feature the same character. There's not many other film series that do that. Yeah, because, well, Bond does. Well, to a point. I mean, most of the posters will say James Bond 007, but in fact, looking back through... The contemporary uh, posters for uh, The Enforcer, very few of them mention Dirty Harry. Well, that's weird because that's the selling
0: point, isn't
1: it? Exactly. And I think they knew they didn't need that for these films. (laughs) They're good enough action films.
0: Because it's just like a Clint Eastwood movie, right? Because
1: if you call it one, two, three, four, five, then people aren't going to jump on midway through, are they? Oh,
0: well, I I don't know about that. Um... Evidence seems to suggest that people just follow these franchises, and that numbering wouldn't have done it any harm commercially. But where was that uh, live performance of the Dirty Harry score? Was Schiffen conducting?
1: No, but I was led to it by uh, Morricone directing uh, initially Once Upon a Time in the West, and then uh, something else, and it just kept taking me to other composers, and I just could had a whole you, night.
0: If you find it, could you send
1: me the link? That would be. It must really be lovely. in the history. Yeah, I'll have a look. Thank
0: you. Uh, and it's interesting because this is in some ways a very Morricone-esque score, because the, the ethereal, eerie, wordless female vocals are very giallo.
1: Yeah, I'll go with that. Um, a little earlier than they were in giallo as well. You're kidding. So you, you're
0: you saying that it might be the other way around, that this might have, the influence might have flowed from Schifrin towards the Italians?
1: In my head, which doesn't account for much, this was what, 71? 70, yeah. So I would guess seventy
0: two, but but I am not uh, I am not coming at this from a point of check. strength. But it was no, early seventies. you seventy one?
1: You have a um, quick look, aren't you? I think we, we, the majority of the jello would have been almost exactly the same time, but I don't think someone like Lala Schifrin is not going to be influenced by someone else who's going to be doing. So his what own you were thing.
0: saying is that it wasn't a massive cliche, certainly at that point.
1: No, I wonder if maybe the Italians took this and ran with it.
0: Well, listen, I am glad you mentioned the Schifrin score because it's it's a crime that it wasn't released on an uh, an album at the time but it has subsequently been released because it's a wonderful, wonderful score in fact, I remember I love this movie when it came out I remember reading the reviews and the review in Time magazine alluded to Lalo Schifrin's kinky jazz score which is kind of a (laughs) cool way of describing it but it's a brilliant score I don't don't know if it's the sort of thing that most people would want to sit down and just listen to because it's like these chunks of kind of contorted music uh, which I love and they're fantastic in the context of the movie.
1: That's why I suspect it didn't have a release at the time. It's not the kind of soundtrack that you can sit down and listen to with a cup of tea. Oh, well,
0: no, that's never stopped them before. What you do in that situation, Matt, is you, the, the composer just, he, he actually creates some uh, more more listener-friendly suites and arrangements, and they do that on album. That They did that all the time. They never actually released the original soundtrack as such. They're always re-recordings, but yeah, so for whatever reason it didn't get released but thank you for getting me to watch this movie i wanted to start by mentioning don siegel there's a very good book about don siegel by Stuart kaminsky but just very quickly he started out as a lowly functionary at warner brothers and he ended up doing the montage which i think we discussed oh is now voyager one of our lost podcasts (laughs) it is that
1: that was a big catastrophe
0: yeah, so what happened there, folks, was we, it's a, well, well, we can always go back to it. I'm much more laid back now, and I'd be happy to do it again. It's a 40s melodrama, and the point reason I mention it, it's a Betty Davis movie. Yeah. The reason I mention it now is because it featured some montage, which are the sequences that you have, say that when time is passing and you see a calendar with the leaves falling off it, things like that. Those were the domain of Don Siegel, he ran, ran the montage department at, at uh, Warner Brothers, so he worked his way up to directing. And he's done loads of movies, some of them not very good, a l- lot of B-movies, a lot of good thrillers. I would have said recently that his masterpiece was The Beguiled*, another movie with Clint Eastwood, and it's a really great movie, but I've, I'm wrong,
1: I'm wrong, his masterpiece is Dirty Harry. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is his fourth in a row with Eastwood.
0: So that would have been, Coogan's Bluff would have been the first one
1: together. Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Oh, that's a really good movie. We've got to watch that. Can we watch that, please? Uh, Well, let's get everything else out of the way first. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's so reluctant to watch the movies I want to watch, people. Anyway, so. That was the whole point.
0: (laughs) No, but, Um, you know, we're both time impoverished, and if you like that movie, there's no reason we shouldn't do that.
1: I'm not sure I have it i'm sure i can get it but um yeah oh, it's, it's,
0: it's very, i got a, a spare copy uh, anyway so he did coogan's bluff on which they met he where siegel i believe took over from another director and they sort of were very wary of each other but they hit it off very well and they did two mules for sister sarah again a brilliant soundtrack in that case Morricone, very good movie i don't know if the the beguile probably did come before dirty harry didn't
1: it yeah it was right before
0: so, and The Beguile was a big commercial flop, but it's a, artistically a great movie. Do, do you have a view on
1: that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen it. Oh, do, do I have a like view it? on it? Yeah. Um, it's not one I'd watch by choice, but it's all right. Okay, so, but then we come to Dirty <laughs> Harry, which we can both
0: agree, well, I think it's Siegel's finest film, and I think it's just flatly a masterpiece.
1: It's interesting coming back to this after quite a, a while since last watching it. I think the last time I watched it would have been at college, so it's over 20 years ago. Um it's a brilliant film. It's incredibly well made, but yes. I have real issues with the script. <laughs> there are some very
0: What, what in ter- in terms of political correctness or in terms
1: of coherence? Political correctness cut doesn't come into it. It's Good. more a question of um logic. Um I'm I'm a little baffled that we have a a guy going around killing people randomly or seemingly randomly. He's
0: what how on earth can that be uh, implausible to you. I mean, look,
1: look at well, what goes what's on. what's happened there. here is that you've interrupted. I beg your pardon. So he's, um, he's killing people randomly. The police are aware that his next victim will be either black or a priest, I think is uh, what he said. And so rather than have any kind of escalation or anything along those lines, instead they wait till the middle of the night and they send their one police detective with a sniper rifle to a roof opposite a church that this guy might turn up at. Uh, with his friend, who's just only just started working with him, uh, who has a flashlight. <laughs> and that is their big plan. That's how they're gonna catch this guy who's well, killing you've people. You've
0: lied it over the bit where they, they have a helicopter patrol sweeping the city.
1: Uh, before that's after that. No. I'm pretty sure it is well either way, the police the helicopter isn't there <laughs> to have you seen s- the, film?
0: the the first The thing, helicopter so isn't there to
1: support Harry on that night though. What use uh, is no, but, a but, helicopter but, I mean, at night?
0: They, there's, a whole, there's been a whole... They've got cops on every rooftop. They've got helicopter patrols. Have you seen this movie?
1: Yes, I have, but I don't think you've considered this sequence. You, it's very, very odd. There's no backup. This,
0: this particular sequence, I'm trying to remember why they end up on their Todd in this sequence. Is it because, For no reason.
1: That's why you can't remember.
0: No, no you're not. No, they're, they're there because, because they
1: think he might turn up there, but they've got no he, backup. Because
0: he'd done something there before and uh, harry has a hunch that he's going to return there again so most of the police resources are committed elsewhere but harry figures he's going to be here that's what i remember about it so before you do a big number on how weak the script is we would have to go back and look at that
1: scene in some detail because i think i think you're wrong but look, there we go. it's a great sequence and i like it but my problem with the film is that it it open it puts its cards on the table right at the beginning by giving us this bizarre caption, which is a tribute to the policemen of San Francisco Police Department who give their lives every day to save everyone. But it paints the San Francisco Police Department as Muppets.
0: No, look, okay. so the the beginning of the film is not a caption. What it is, it's a shot of a memorial with some words carved in stone. It it, it wasn't done for this movie. It's a a piece of verite photography of uh, a memorial which lists the lives of the... Uh, san francisco cops who who were killed in the line of duty correct
1: yeah so thereby implying that this film is in some way a tribute to them
0: well it's not a caption so it's not editorially it's a single shot it's It's a
1: static shot that's a caption i'm not talking about Um, letters on a screen caption i'm talking about a static shot
0: well it's 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 not a caption it's just a shot of, of something and but yes no i agree with you that it could be interpreted it as suggesting that that's what the movie's about. But it's very different from if those words had appeared on the screen presented there by the filmmakers, which it's not.
1: So you're saying that
0: that a typeset card had been projected on the screen. That's a very different thing.
1: Well, okay, that's another way of looking at it. What do you think Siegel's motivation is of starting the film with that shot?
0: I think that it ties in with the end where Harry throws his badge away.
1: Which is saying what?
0: I don't know. I don't, don't know what it, I think. It's just a cool way of well, okay. If you want me to build a case for this, there is some vague argument in this movie that that the police are, are encumbered by all these silly laws and regulations, and that uh, the, the basic frontier instinct of the law enforcement is is being restrained. I don't think that's tremendously present in this movie. I think that that's one of the interpretations that it's been put on it. I just think it's an Look, Siegel was just looking for interesting shots. And in that sequence that you don't like on top of the building, there's this brilliant rotating neon sign that says Jesus saves, right? And he gets shot up by the sniper. So he's just looking for... There's loads of,
1: of religious iconography in this. There. Yeah, Almost yeah every that's true. Absolutely. every seems to have something around it, uh, even yeah. if it's like a big bloody cross or a church. Well, but, I do
0: feel that you've sort of kind of put things back to front here because you, you're weighing in heavy on with criticisms of this movie, but we both think this
1: movie is a masterpiece. I, I started out by saying I love it. I think it's great. But watching it this time, I found it a bit on the NRA side. Yeah. Um,
0: in the, you know. What well, Matt means there is the National Rifle Association, which are the gun nuts who make billions out of sales of guns and so prevent any attempt at legislation and sane gun laws that would prevent mass shootings. Is that a fair summary, what the NRA Absolutely,
1: is? yeah. Um, and I think this film is very pro-gun and very pro-lethal uh, force.
0: I think that some of the people involved in this film had that point of view, and that that's certainly what we can pick up from it. I think it's basically a, a lone cop movie, and he's he's a, a, a maverick. But if you wanted to trace that thing about the you know the NRA philosophy, I think that would mostly come from John Milius. So just a bit of background here: this movie was a script by. A writer called Fink, Harry Julian Fink, uh, which he, he gave a co-writing credit to his wife at the time, Rita M. Fink. So Harry Julian Fink, Rita Fink, and then it was heavily rewritten by Dean Reisner. But along the way, John Millius was involved in the script and apparently was responsible for the bit that most people remember, which is the, uh, the 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 you know did I
1: fire six shots or only five? Well, this is an interesting point as well, is that this film is. Notorious. I mean, I would say that that quote from this film, pretty much everyone is aware of. Yeah. But they always get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's well, it's like Play It Again, Sam, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those weird, frustrating things that no one gets the line right. But Can you give us the right line and the wrong line?
0: I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. Being this is a .44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk?
1: Yeah. Um, It's a long-winded quote. This is why they don't quote the whole thing. They only quote the do you feel lucky part. Yeah. But,
0: but I've got to say as a kid in a cinema in Winnipeg seeing this movie for the first time the scene where he's eating his hot dog and the bank robbery <laughs> kicks off and he goes across the street and he shoots I, I just thought it was the most great scene it was fan- and it is, it's fantastic
1: I completely agree with you but the passage of time has made me look at the film in a slightly different way as we've seen society and everything else degenerate completely in the US I think films <laughs> like this were part of the problem um,
0: Look, it, it it certainly has been included in a flotilla of vigilante movies, and there's no doubt that the, that that interpretation hovers over it because the uh, the bad guy gets off on a technicality, although correctly, because
1: anyway we're we're absolutely. rushing far ahead. I mean, I wanted to We're both to quite familiar with procedural uh, police yep. uh, novels and dramas, and you know, just the the effort that has to go into uh, detecting a case in any way at all. And we don't get any of that in this. There's very little uh, procedural element. There do not seem to be yeah, any rules governing actually, anyone.
0: Well, this is this was a very hot script. Frank Sinatra was going to be in it at one point because everybody loved this character of Dirty Harry, this maverick cop. So it's not really about police procedure as such. Although it it, it, it kind of pretends to be. It's basically about a gr- bunch of great scenes about this kick-ass cop that's what the movie's right. about that's all um, it's about
1: well I'm absolutely fine with this and I say I love this film but why open with that shot if you aren't going to be in any way at all respectful of the police and what they do if anything it diminishes uh, the police
0: I would have said because it's a cool shot visually and because it says that policing is dangerous and also unless I'm mistaken it's tied in with the sniper like he's either he is he focusing in on that or is he near that memorial anyway that's I think it's just there because it's a cool visual and it says this is a movie about policing and it's a movie about sudden death <laughs> mm. which is fair enough
1: I think there are other motivations behind it so yeah it, it, that's what sits uneasy and as you've said we've, we've got a film here where the killer actually gets off in the first sort of 45 minutes and yeah because there was, the search was
0: stuff. illegal just to mention another movie there's a movie called Bridges Spies a Spielberg movie which is a very good movie in that there's somebody who should have got off because the search was completely illegal. And the judge, in, the complete, in, a, in a flagrantly uh, illegal move, says that, that the evidence is admissible. So in this case, what they did was right. This is a fictional movie that we're talking mm-hmm. about now, Dirty Harry. But that would be correct. If they didn't have a search warrant, if they hadn't given him his Miranda rights, that is the way the law is. And the surprising thing in this... Is only that D- D- Dirty Harry would be surprised about that in any way at all. He, he's a, a professional cop would know that, and he would have somehow covered for that, I would have thought.
1: The other thing that I wonder about, and I, it's alluded to in the story at least, that Harry's relatively recently lost his wife. Um, he can't have been like this throughout his whole career, or he had never got to the rank that he's at. So, Detective Inspector? Something like that? Well, no, it's not. It's a weird rank, because it...
0: I can't remember what he is, but He's it's... Detective something. He's Detective Harry Callahan, isn't he?
1: Yeah, but it's it. It's not the normal rank you'd expect him to You'd normally expect him to be the, a lieutenant or something. The I
0: have, mad is that we're picking at all these nits, and we haven't laid out the stall that this is a great movie. I'd rather talk yes, about... Yes, I think I have
1: cr- said it's a great movie. We're getting to that. Let's save
0: the criticisms for a little bit and just... Talk about the movie more generally, more positively, if, if you would be so kind. Okay. One of the things that struck me about it is it kept reminding me, you're going to think I'm nuts, but you do anyway, of a vampire movie. I don't know if you've ever seen The Night Stalker. Yeah. That's about this vampire who's on the loose at night, uh, picking off people in Las Vegas as it happens. And then there's this fear of what's going to happen when night falls and the authorities are in a battle to try and get this vampire they're denying he's a vampire in that movie by the way but of course he is so I felt that this was like that and that you had this sniper on the loose although he does eventually work in daylight his basic modus operandi is to strike at night and there's that same sense of fear and of a race against time and of an almost supernatural opponent do you think there's any validity in that
1: yeah where this differs hugely from Kolchak is that it's got the most astonishing lighting at night Um, yes the cinematography on this is phenomenal. Bruce Surtees, and he's a genius. The lighting, especially in the park when Harry's running and he's pretty much the only thing in shot, is a fucking nightmare to set up. I mean the, they've done such a good job on it. There's a, a sequence as well where there's a there's a a kid picked out in the dark uh, uh, picked out in the darkness. I can't remember exactly where it is. I think it's when Harry's running, and he's pretty much all that's in the shot.
0: Listen, Matt, Bruce Sirtis des- deserved the Oscar for this movie. I've never seen such wonderful photography.
1: It's very good. It looks very nice.
0: And it's funny that you mentioned the nighttime photography because I had made a note. this was my main note from this movie. There's a bit where Harry is used to he's asked to talk down a guy who wants to jump from this building. The guy is standing on a ledge high up on a building and Harry goes up in this thing this uh, whatever you call it like this uh, a crane from the, the fire department, and here's the thing, he's then at the same level as the guy who's standing on the ledge, and they're talking, and there is just this tiny curl of illumination on the side of Clint Eastwood's face. I
1: can't imagine a movie star doing that these days. Do you know what's interesting about that sequence? Tell me. Eastwood directed that. Oh,
0: that's, I think you're right. Yes, I, I think I read um, that in an interview, yeah.
1: Basically, I think... It was scheduled to be a three-night shoot and he did it in one evening
0: that's classic eastwood
1: isn't it just um and i think it it's pretty seamless with the rest of the film but i think it's a really well shot sequence
0: (laughs) well i think surtees i'm sure seagull sorry eastwood deserves some credit for it but i'm sure the what eastwood really deserves credit for is parking his ego and not minding that he doesn't have a, a huge searchlight on his face because Certes has lit him so subtly and you can absolutely see who he is and you can see his identity and his character but with just this tiniest hint of light. it's This is Caravaggio. This is, you know, Renoir. This is fantastic lighting. I suspect
1: and, that sequence wasn't Certes because this was second unit.
0: Uh, I think before we steal... Bruce Surtees' credit for a fantastic shot, we, we need to validate that. But even if what you say is true, it's in keeping with the rest of the film and there's yeah. other fantastic night sequences which are unquestionably uh, Surtey's. Do you remember that shot when at Dawn is just coming up over the Golden Gate Bridge?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Which has actually, I think, been used in another film. Um, well,
0: they, they just recycled the footage.
1: Yeah, just use the same shot.
0: Well, right. it's, it's an amazing shot. Bruce Surtees' photography is just, it's utterly wonderful. So I loved it. So yeah. Um, what now? I know that you wanted to big up the the actor who plays the bad guy. Who interestingly, in the credits at the end, I thought he, they'd call him Scorpio because that's the the uh, name he's assumed. I think he's just credited as the sniper at the yeah, end, or he's the killer. killer or or the
1: killer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's Andrew Robinson, who. Yeah. have I've always liked Andrew Robinson, and um, this is not. I, mean, I must have known he was in this film, but I didn't put two and two together. What I know him for most is uh, Deep Space Nine, Star Trek series. And he played uh, a character called Garak. He's in quite heavy makeup. He's a Cardassian, so you don't necessarily recognise him. But once you've watched about three episodes, you know it's him.
0: <laughs> He's a Cardassian.
1: Cardassian.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm speaking from the point of view of somebody who doesn't know his show.
1: Um, his character's superb. He is a... You don't know whether he's a good or a bad guy. Uh, And he's almost a gentle comedy character, but he has incredibly dark moments as well. It's One of of the weird things with Deep Space Nine is that all of their subsidiary characters were much better than their main characters, mainly because they cast them really well. So what you're saying is that Andrew Robinson, Andy Robinson, I think he's often
0: credited as, had a career beyond this film what this he air. did
1: well he, he did what uh, six or seven years presumably on Deep Space Nine the only other well, that's thing that's great I've, so I he think... was at a regular gig that's great well not that much he, this film should have launched a lot of work for him and it didn't
0: well I think that's because he plays psych, such a reprehensible psycho and he does it so well I mentioned this to you before at the very beginning when he sort of getting ready to do, to, to do his thing, which is to take out a sniper's rifle and kill somebody at random, he puts on this pair of black gloves in this, in this really sort of dramatic fashion he wiggles his hands. He's, like a, he's a, like a conductor who's about to conduct a symphony orchestra. But it's a brilliant character moment from somebody who's thinking, I'm supposed to be the bad guy.
1: I'm really going to give them a bad guy. I've never seen him interviewed about this film, but I suspect that there's a hell of a lot of improv going on here. Um, especially on the bus with the kids it feels to me like he's um, off the rails I don't think much of that is as scripted I think possibly it was just like yeah he goes nuts
0: <laughs> well it's Don Siegel had very strong and interesting ideas like so he asked for Andy Robinson to have to wear like paratrooper boots army boots properly laced and there's a scene where he's actually shining them by rubbing them against you know rubbing one the toe of his boot against his trouser leg because he wanted to insert the idea that this guy might be ex-military and he also got the props department to give him the biggest peace sign belt buckle that they could possibly find because he found that amusing but watching the movie it's a really great peace sign belt buckle because it's sort of it's sort of a contorted handmade thing and it almost doesn't look like a peace sign so it doesn't have the effect that don siegel wanted which i think was to say people can you know pretend to be peace loving hippies and still be mass murders it's just really gr- groovy looking thing
1: I think the first time it's clearly visible that belt buckle is one of the first really bright daylight shots it's when he's climbing up um, from his little den um, the the belt buckle is just it sh- I think they possibly put a light on it to shine it as well <laughs> he's, um,
0: not used to it. Siegel was very keen on this visual gag I noticed it in the, the really weird scene where he goes and pays a guy to beat the shit out of him
1: yes <laughs> which is I mean, I'd, I'd love to know where you hire that guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, and how much work does he get? So so just so people who who, uh, who are listening to this and think what the hell's going on. So it's a basic setup that there's a mad sniper on the loose. There's a loose cannon cop after him. He's only a loose cannon because his superiors aren't letting him, you know, do what is necessary. So Eastwood, it's this cat and mouse game and Eastwood actually catches the guy. Well, let's talk a bit about that. So there's this really grueling sequence in which Scorpio, Andrew Robinson, has kidnapped a teenage girl and he says he's got her buried somewhere with just enough air to, to last till dawn and he, he wants he wants a ransom paid. And there's this very harrowing scene where Dirty Harry's the guy who's supposed to deliver the money, right?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the dashing from phone box to phone box sequence which has been copied in many films since.
0: Interesting. And then it ends up in that sequence in the park which you've alluded to twice number one in the fantastic dark uh photography and also the giant concrete cross where he ends up
1: Mm. yeah keep an eye out for your crosses in this
0: (laughs) yeah so what then happens is that uh he's double crossed of course by the bad guy who intends to let the girl die and take the money but it's not as simple as that and dirty harry tracks him down and there's this amazing sequence where the bad guy lives in, in the groundskeeper's hut at a football stadium and Harry finds him and uh, he basically starts to torture him. What has happened is that he's shot Scorpio in the leg. No, he's knifed him. He's knifed him in the yeah. leg, right? And uh, Scorpio's gone to the hospital to get uh, his, his wounds seen to him. That's how Harry's tracked him down. And he finds him and he, he ends up in the middle of this the football field, the grass in this football stadium and he begins to grind his foot his shoe into the wound in the guy's leg to get him to tell where the girl is so they can save the girl but the amazing thing about this shot is uh it's very clear that Siegel went to great he visualizes very carefully because he thinks he's rightly that he doesn't want to linger on this and people to see it so we just see we see Harry's contorted face full of rage and self-loathing as he begins to torment this guy and the camera pulls back and at this stage in history it must have been a helicopter not a drone correct
1: Oh, it is a helicopter. You can see his yeah, hair and everything so flapping in the wind. The <laughs>
0: helicopter pulls back, and this we we pull back from the stadium, and this mist closes in. Right, so it's actually shrouded in mist, and it disappears in the distance. That the, the scene of the, the torture, I, isn't that the most amazing shot?
1: Well, it is, and just prior to it as well, when he is um, torturing Scorpio, Scorpio's scream is phenomenal. <laughs> um, again, this is Andrew Robinson really going for it rather than just like an owl that hurts he screams like a fucking banshee Yeah, Um, it's pretty demented stuff it all adds to the character that's why I
0: think he had trouble getting work because it's such an extreme performance but it's extreme because he's delivering the goods with unbelievable skill I would have said
1: Um, there's not many women in this film and those that are are usually victims or already dead uh, um, and
0: generally naked, it has to be yeah. said.
1: But there is one character who I just adore, and it's just purely for the character name. And she's referenced by name once, and it's in the alleyway. Is when it Big Mary? Hot Mary. Hot, Hot Mary and her boyfriend. <laughs> I just love the name Hot Mary. <laughs> uh-huh. It's one of those little uh, details. Well, can, that. Can you,
0: can you, if anybody heard that, that was the sound of a cat flap. As a cat came in, hello, cat. um it Could be another, you know, if we really wanted to ride that horse, that that could be another religious reference, couldn't it? <laughs>
1: Not quite. Uh, but, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. If it wasn't deliberate, actually.
0: But, but, oh, another oh. Oh, cat. We love that. Listen, your food is out. If you want to go and have it so, anyway, that's this. This podcast is brought to you by person who owns a cat
1: limited yeah, mine's staring at me as well and hasn't stopped since we started i think i must be i'm supposed to be doing something i just don't know what
0: <laughs> so you know i feel that we kind of in a way missed the target in our description of this film because have we captured like this is a fabulous police thriller i mean that's one reason it's better than the Begal because although the Bigard i would contend is a great movie this is Siegel doing what he had done before a number of times doing police thrillers uh, and this is the apotheosis of that, and I think it's one of the, it's certainly one of the greatest cop movies ever made, and also one of the greatest movies. It's just a masterpiece of a certain kind of commercial Hollywood filmmaking. We haven't and really discussed just...
1: Eastwood himself.
0: Well, the thing that struck me about this was that, especially in that scene where he's torturing Scorpio, is that there's a kind of self-loathing and also an extremity. Like you don't feel that this guy. He's been driven to the point of madness, too. Obviously, Scorpio's kind of a madman, but I, I felt that, that, that Eastwood played Harry at times like a madman. There are quite a few
1: actors out there
0: who... <laughs> cat wants food. Shall I feed the cat? Shall you, I do that?
1: You just said our food's there. Yeah, but... How long's get... it going to take you to do a How leg of lamb you for you that fat to, fucker?
0: Do you want to know about my, my life with my cat? Here's the thing. The, uh, the food is up on the counter, which he's quite capable of jumping up. And getting to. I mean if there was a cat that break the I mean, counter. She, if there was a cat that she wanted to beat up, which there sometimes is next door, she jumps onto the garden wall and over it with no problem. But we've got into this situation in our relationship where she expects me to lift her onto the counter. So that's that's what I'm gonna pause now. I'm gonna lift my cat onto the counter, which she's quite capable of jumping up to, so she can eat her food. Watch I'll be you back. back in a minute. She <laughs> may want to play some music. Okay, cat, here we go. You have no idea how unprofessional you're making me sound to our millions of listeners. Okay. Right, I've got you. As a fellow cat owner, it may not entirely surprise you to know that my cat didn't really want food.
1: She just wanted attention. Look, we had a fight with our two trying to get into the vet this week, which was hell on earth. Um, I ended up watching a a video on YouTube with a vet on how to... Because I used to be able to pick up our cats, but they don't want it anymore. And his advice is squish the cat, which... Like get a towel, maybe? Well, partly, but also if you just push a cat down... Compress. Yeah, squish the cat. And he said, "Squish the cat. It will never give you any trouble. Just squish the cat."
0: Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that, that makes sense. For me, the um, I now have a vet who comes to me. That's <laughs> trust me. That's by, if you can get one. That's by far the best way.
1: Still got to catch the cat.
0: <laughs> you, you, well, it, yeah. You've, you just have to be in the same room as the cat. That's true. But back when I had to go to the vets, what I, the big trick was not using the cat, the expensive cat carrier I bought, but a cardboard one, which you can open at the top and lift them into. It's a lot easier than getting them to go through the door of the, the cat carrier. Anyway, um, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, going back <laughs> to Clint
0: Eastwood. <laughs> yeah, now, well, that. thank you very much for that, because I was saying, we hadn't really touched on uh, some aspects of the film, including the star you reminded
1: me. So, let's well, talk quickly. Here's the thing with Eastwood, is that I, I bracket him with the likes of Jeff Goldblum, um, uh, what well, let's just stick with Jack. Just basically, actors well, well, that's who a really weird comparison. S- well, okay, it's so actors it. who are seemingly the same in every film they're in, but always have a clearly defined character that you just don't realize is beneath that almost identical performance and delivery. So, for the most part, Clint Eastwood plays Clint Eastwood in Clint Eastwood films. Yeah, but there's always something about him that works. He he finds a way of playing it, and. Although the delivery and the, the everything else is the same, he still... it works. They're always clearly defined characters.
0: Well, uh, my take on Eastwood is that I don't think he's a great actor, but I think he could have been a great silent movie actor because I was re-watching some of those very early Spaghetti Westons, the, the, um, the Leone movies. I think it was probably the first one, uh, A Fistful of Dollars. And in that... St- movie Clint Eastwood gets beaten up right and he's really badly beaten and he's sort of moving around crawling around and I completely believed that this guy was beaten up like there was yes. nothing nothing inauthentic about that acting it was totally convincing so as a physical actor he is perfect he's unparalleled
1: I think what but, he has as an actor <laughs> which a lot of yeah. actors don't is he has an understanding of how film works and the mechanics yes. of film he's a very good director. Yeah. um he is well aware as an actor what he needs to do in the frame in order to make a shot exactly. work exactly. and that is invaluable because that means that you can take a shit film and make it a lot better by putting him in it in much the same way and this is a, another odd one but i noticed this uh I was, we're doing never say never again soon and i was watching yeah. uh an interview connery? with sean connery which is very rare for him to even be interviewed that man's understanding of film, character, motivation, everything else is incredible. He absolutely knows what makes a film work. And I'm surprised he didn't direct because he really should have directed. Well, he always sort of had a, an idea of what people should be doing, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. So um, I think, again, but with Eastwood, he did direct and he did know. Yeah. And especially with this film, as we just said, with that, that rooftop sequence, he knew what was needed in order to get the film done. But not only that, he can do it in a night. There's no fucking about with Eastwood. It, there's an economy to his delivery and there's an economy to his direction as well. He gets the job done.
0: That was a brilliant comparison of Connery and Eastwood because both of them refused to suffer fools. Mm. And both of them had very strong ideas about how movies should be made. But as you say, uh, Eastwood carried it to the natural, the logical conclusion of... Shooting his own movies of directing, but in this he is great because he's at his peak. He's at his most handsome and charismatic and star starlike. What that really was hit home to me because amongst the extras there are some clips from the later movies, and he begins to look like the haggard, skinny Clint Eastwood, and he just loses that charisma because he, he's at his peak here. I was going to say that I think he's a great physical actor. He would have been a great silent movie actor. I don't think he's that good at dialogue because his voice is always is basically a monotone and I don't think he's very expressive.
1: I think the problem there, it, it's in this script, is that the dialogue he has is not particularly thrilling. Um, no,
0: I disagree, Matt. It's not as though if you wrote him these magnificent speeches that he'd be the man to deliver them. He isn't.
1: Well, when did anyone ever do that?
0: I, I will say this. Later in his career, in a movie that he did direct and starred in, White Hunter Black Heart, he gives an amazing performance because he's basically... Uh, playing John Houston. And he does it brilliantly. So he may be a much more capable actor than I'm willing to give him credit for. But he's just... I don't think he's great at dialogue and I don't think it's the fault
1: of the script. Anyway. I think that's, that accusation well, that he wouldn't be able to deliver the big speech, I can't think of a film where he was ever given one to deliver. So there's yeah, no way you know of knowing. Yeah, know why
0: that is? Because I remember seeing a documentary about this where, where it was on location photography and it was about that scene I, let's call it the hot dog scene the scene where he shoots up mm. the, um, the, uh, the the bank robbers and he he's going through the script I guess it, this would have been with Siegel and he says we don't need this this is all exposition let's do it without dialogue so which is absolutely was the right idea because it's a great sequence but if he didn't have long speeches Matt that could be one reason why because he never wanted them
1: so does that necessarily mean that he's a bad actor? Because yeah, this it does, film, because the, act,
0: this, the, the dialogue that he's given, he just gives in this kind of very look. It's very flat. There's not much characterization to it. This isn't. I'll stand by my contention that he's not a great actor on the basis of, what, of this and other movies. He always delivers the things in the same kind of tough guy tone of voice, for instance. Although Absolutely, I, say, I agree with that. In *The Beguiled*, he's, he does show a lot more variety so uh, yeah perhaps he had the capability to be a much better actor than he was but he didn't need to do that because he basically just settled into a, a comfort 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 zone comfortable rut
1: you look at something like um, oh, i can't think of the name of it he made it a couple of years ago the one where he um, is smuggling stuff across
0: the mule that's a great movie yeah
1: now he wasn't doing tough guy lines in that in fact he was playing it very vulnerable
0: the late Eastwood has certainly changed, uh, you know, from the White White, white Hunter, Black Heart, on, or perhaps even before that. He was, he had loosened up, and he was showing an, a more interesting side to himself. Certainly, yeah.
1: I think it was more likely that he was given the chance to do that. I think there was too much expectation on his star, partly because of the Leone westerns, but especially because of films like this, that that's all he was being given to do or expected well, no, to do the, or needed to do is to get a nonsense. film to make money. He, had his own,
0: he totally did his own movies with his own production company. But what you're saying could remain true in that it was what the public expected of him.
1: Yeah, it made money. And that's the purpose of making films. And I think once he'd made enough money, it was now in a position to make films that aren't necessarily going to light up the bank balance.
0: Is there any chance that we could credit... Uh, his partner Chico, because I, I thought that that guy was really good. Yeah, I thought he was an excellent actor. I thought the supporting actors were generally very good, but he was very good.
1: Yeah, he just doesn't get much to do, poor sod. And also, I mean. Do you have it...
0: his name there in front of you?
1: Oh, no. Bear with me. God, typical bloody. Renny Santoni.
0: Yeah, he was terrific in it. Oh, yeah, I thought I, he was the best of the supporting I don't think I've seen him in anything else.
1: I don't think I've seen him in anything else. Oh, we well, died in 2020.
0: Uh, it would be interesting if he dropped out of movies after, because he drops out of the police force, doesn't he? <laughs> he's such a bad time with Harry, and he gets wounded, so he decides to go back to teaching. Maybe the actor did that too. I don't know. Uh,
1: lots of telly. Who's uh, he's, in... <laughs> <laughs> he's an uncredited voice in Groundhog Day. <laughs> wow, things really went well for him. Oh, um, I'm so sorry. It, no, but
0: he, he's a, he's a marvelous in this. But okay, this is totally Eastwood's movie, and it's in some ways it was the making of him because he already had, he was already a big big action star on the basis of the westerns. But this kind of reinvented him as an urban cowboy, I think, as as the rogue cop,
1: which I think he needed. Uh, the westerns were becoming a bit much by this stage. It was all he was doing. So I can see. It let's it see,
0: have it. a quick look back. Yeah, so Coogan's Bluff was like a he, he was a cowboy in the big city, so it was effectively a western. Uh, two it's Mules almost like the uh,
1: the interim point between the two careers, that one.
0: Two Mules was absolutely a Western, and The Beguiled was, they tried to market it sort of as a Western. It's a Civil War story. So, yeah, you're right. The, the, he hadn't really begun his, his urban period. And what's really distressing
1: impressed. is you said earlier how good he looks in this and how he's like prime condition. Yeah. He's older than me. <laughs> it's so, so he depressing. Was
0: al- <laughs> oh, well, he, he was already old in this, you mean?
1: Yeah. I mean this you know, this is dirty harry's is 71 and he's older than I am now.
0: Well how old was he in 71 then?
1: Uh, I think it was 43 bear with me I'll check. Well, that's
0: yeah because he he makes sense doesn't was it? Struggling to to become an actor in the 50s he'd been around for quite a while so yeah he'd probably been in, in acting for 20 years at this point. Yeah so born in 1930. Possibly. So he was in his early 40s at this point.
1: Yeah. Incredible, isn't yeah.
0: it? Yeah. So, yeah, so he's in great shape. <laughs> so so a... good for him. And so I think it's a really, despite what Matt says, I think it's a really good script uh, because it just offers, I mean, it's just a bunch of set pieces, but they're great set pieces. It's wonderfully directed by Clint Eastwood. The, the photography no, certainly not. deserved an Oscar. It's directed Sorry. by Don Siegel. I did I, who did I say, Eastwood? <laughs> <laughs> that was such a Freudian... No, and it was Siegel's masterpiece, so forgive me for getting that wrong. So, great director. The cinematography is exemplary. Magical score by Lalo Schiffer and great performance by Eastwood. Can I tell you one other thing, that, that a little touch in this that I thought was amazing? And maybe, maybe I'm wrong about it, but the big ending takes place at this kind of... Um, there's some kind of processing plant in, in a kind of quarry, and uh, it, there's a huge mound of sand there. Anyway, the bad guy's kidnapped a bus the school, school bus for the children. And the bus comes to a screeching halt in this sand pit. And then the bad guy comes fleeing out and goes after him. Now, the thing that I really struck me about this is that in the, we have the shot of Andy Robinson running from the bus. And all the dust is still hanging in the air from the bus having screeched to a halt. Now, that couldn't actually have happened in the reality of filmmaking because what they would have had to done it would have had to have been another setup and somebody would have had to think oh if the bus has just stopped the dust will still be hanging in the air so we've got to put the dust in the air i just thought that was amazing
1: or it's possible that they cut in early on another shot with the bus actually moves in but they cut early to that shot
0: they would have had to have two camera setups then right one
1: because you can drive a bus twice
0: well, so all you're saying is that that's how they got the the dust in the air is by driving the bus, and it still still stands. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's possible that they just had two shots, two lots of coverage on this, and then they can bring yeah. one in for in keep oh, the one dust in One following the
0: bus in from behind, and the other waiting for the bus to arrive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I well, if that's the case, that's great too. But I, if somebody actually went to the trouble of, because when you're making movies, you can't always think like that. You can't always get your head into thinking what should actually be in that shot because you're doing it on a different day at a different angle. And it's all fragmented. Anyway, so great you, work. You
1: rely on a good continuity advisor.
0: They would have to be really hot in this. Um, what, what Are there any other little points that we want to... Hear? No, I, I
1: think they'll come up more as we work our way through the next four films. Uh, yeah. Because the other say, bugbear with this, obviously, is at the end, he, as you say, he throws the badge away. And yet in the next film, no mention is made of that.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, because like the, <laughs> the franchise was on its way. But... I like to think that it was like... um, Do you you know a a series called Curb Your
1: Enthusiasm? Yeah. Of course.
0: Uh, uh, And the guy whose series that is is called... Larry David. Larry David. Okay, so Larry David, who is in Curb Your Enthusiasm and did Seinfeld, his first big gig was writing for Saturday Night Live. So what happened was he got into a huge row with the people at Saturday Night Live and he quit he walked out on friday and he just quit take your job and shove it and then he, he immediately began to really regret it so he talked to his friends and they said oh just go back in like nothing yes. happened so he went <laughs> on monday morning and just pretended that nothing had happened i like to think that that's what Dirty harry did
1: i, I tend to live my life by uh, larry david's rules on these things <laughs> yeah that is one i like <laughs> i also so like there bit. was um a, a very good stand-up show he did once as well someone else was telling the story about how he went up on stage Uh, He had the applause, he stood in the middle of the stage, looked at the audience and went, nah, and walked off (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, anyway, an interesting... So that's what Dirty
0: Harry did after throwing the badge away
1: Yeah, just turned up the next day and no one knew (laughs) pretended nothing had happened So yeah, Uh, Dirty Harry We're going
0: to do a bunch more Dirty Harry, I've got to say I looked at the extras on this This Blu-ray set is replete with extras and my heart did sink a bit because all the
1: all the sequels looked pretty ropey compared to this. But I guess we'll find out. Indeed. Um, but yeah, Dirty Harry, fantastic film, superb soundtrack. But then when has there ever been a bad Lolo Schifrin soundtrack?
0: I don't think there, ha- there has, but this yeah. is one of his best, I would have said. And it's, if somebody hasn't seen it, please see this movie. It's a very dark, compelling thriller. Beautifully shot. Any, and if anybody wants to be a cinematographer, just look at Bruce Sirti's work in this. Or a director, look at uh, Siegel's work, including the sequences that Eastwood did, which sort of points strongly forward to his, uh, his own directorial work, which is very compelling. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now, is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. Get the hell out of here. Boy.